Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast, coming to you as always from just outside of Boston. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant, but not famous. And well, the not famous part is ironic because they are all well-known and respected in their field by their peers and by the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize their name, but they really are brilliant and committed to their work. I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work they're doing, things that they're passionate about. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope that some positive things come from sharing their stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited to have on my show Dr. Nasser Hanna. And Dr. Hanna is the Tom and Julie Wood Family Foundation Professor of Lung Cancer Clinical Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. He is a medical oncologist at the Indiana, uh, Indiana University Simon Cancer Center in Indianapolis. He's a thoracic program leader and also a thoracic oncology researcher. Dr. Hanna received his medical degree from the University of Missouri and did his residency at the University of Iowa and his fellowship at Indiana University Medical Center. So, well-grounded in the Midwest, of course, it looks like. Uh, we'll have to talk about that. Uh, anyway, uh, Nasser, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's it's really, it's great to be with you. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I know when we when we first met, you know, we had some some great Midwestern conversations. So I think that's the perfect place for us to start today in our conversation is is to have, let, let's start with your Midwestern roots and your deep ties to St. Louis. Yeah, I grew up in St. Charles, which uh, at the time was a small rural uh, town about 20 miles west of St. Louis. And, you know, I grew up in the 1970s and uh, I, uh, my world revolved around uh, sports, like probably most uh, young boys at that time. And I was a, a huge St. Louis baseball Cardinals fan. At that time, the football Cardinals were still in St. Louis and, and the St. Louis Blues. And uh, I, uh, I grew up going to public schools and uh, just having the full experience of, uh, of growing up in a small town in Missouri in the 1970s. Were your, were your, uh, was your family from that area? You have uh, long ties to that area? No, not at all. My parents were immigrants. So my dad uh, first came to the United States, I believe it was in about 1965, which was three years where I was before I was born. And uh, he was a physician. He ended up doing a, a residency at the University of Missouri in Columbia. And he practiced in the St. Louis area. So uh, my mom came over shortly thereafter. She got her master's degree at Washington University in St. Louis, a master's in social work. And in 1968, I was born. Wow, that's amazing. So is there was there a reason why uh, when your dad first came here that it, that he ended up in, in in St. Louis? Was it an opportunity that was there or... Yeah, it's all about opportunities, yeah. and uh, that was the opportunity that he was given. He didn't know anyone. English was not his first language. He was uh, a really, um, he 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 really was a pioneer in many respects in our family, 
And I'm, I'm always forever grateful for, for him bring, bringing the family to the U.S. I have two older sisters, one of whom was born in Ghana and uh, one of whom was born in, in Egypt. And, and uh, they were both very young when uh, he came to the U.S. Wow. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I, I'm, I'm sure your I'm sure your parents are are super proud of uh, of of you and your and your sisters. And um, I, I I often wonder when, of course, you had a, a father who was a physician. So I wondered if you know, did you always want to be a doctor, or when did that uh, kind of spark your interest? You know, I did, but it was for different reasons. You know, when you're a kid. You do the. You're motivated by things uh, that are uh, not fully thought out and mature thoughts. But you know, like a lot of uh, a lot of kids, the parents are their role models, and both of my parents were in the healthcare field, and you know, I deeply respected them and what they did. And you know, I remember um, in the '70s we would go to the grocery store. And, you know, people would just stop my dad, say hello, thank him for helping out, you know, whoever in the family, you'd go to the, you know, the restaurant and somebody would buy you dinner, you would go to the the vegetable stand and, you know, the person who owns the vegetable stand would cover, you know, they would say, hey, doc, I got it. Thanks for helping my sister last week. And, you know, it's just really, uh, that was the kind of atmosphere that, that there was. And so, I uh, that's what I wanted to do. And when I went to medical school, I initially did plan to do primary care. Actually, one of my heroes was actually my pediatrician, Dr. Cleaver. He was a legend in the St. Louis area. He was everyone's pediatrician. And he had 11 children himself. And, um, you know, he'd stick the otoscope in your ear and tell you how he saw giraffes and elephants and you know, made you feel at ease. So, uh, so when I went to medical school, my initial intention was to do primary care and, and to work in a rural community because that's pretty much what I knew. Wow. So, oh, so, so your dad was practicing in the, in the small town, you know, it's yeah. interesting. My, my father-in-law uh, was a pharmacist in a small town in Western New York. And it was very similar uh, to what you just described. That's what sparked these memories because, you know, he was the, it was Lane Drugs, and he was Doctor. You know, he was Henry. You know, and he was the, he was the everybody's pharmacist, right? Because that's where you went to to the to the on Main Street. You went to the to Lane Drugs to get your prescription. So that's really cool. So I know when we talked, you know, uh, when you talked about Doctor Cleaver, and I know you wanted to be initially. I think you wanted to be Doctor Cleaver. You wanted to be the next Doctor Cleaver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but you told me about a lecture that you heard in um, medical school. Uh, and I'd love that from uh, Dr. Donald Dahl, and I'd love to have you share that story with us. Yeah, oh, I, this uh, this is a very powerful experience. I uh, was a second year medical student at the University of Missouri, and again, I was sort of on the "I'm going to be a primary care doctor in a in a small town" mindset, uh, which is, by the way, a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. And um, I did not anticipate anything differently that morning, but the cancer section of the pathology course began, and Dr. Dahl was a hematologist oncologist, and I could not even tell you what that was. I couldn't tell you what it took to become one. I couldn't tell you about the field at all. I'm not even sure I could tell you what cancer was. 
And he began his lectures. He's a very extroverted personality with, you know, big personality, a booming voice, just commands your attention immediately. But it wasn't just his presence and his voice, but it was what he was saying. And I uh, was so interested. I was engaged. I was uh, really unlike anything I'd ever been before. The only thing I could think of that ever came close to how interested I was in this topic was when we would talk sports. You know, what were the Cardinals going to do this year? How was Mizzou's basketball team going to be this year? <laughs> you know, you get exciting. You could talk endlessly about it. Um, and that's how I felt about these talks. And it was the first time really in formal education where I read and studied independently of what I had to do for the test and really wanted to, to read because I was curious. I wanted to know. And it wasn't necessarily because I had to. Wow, that's so powerful. I, I often talk to people on my show and I often I hear similar stories of something that happened. In fact, I was just talking to my I had lunch with my son yesterday and he was his his girlfriend is in medical school and she's just starting her second year. And I asked her if he, she knew, you know, where she wanted to specialize or and she said, Well, she might she'd be a great pediatrician, but she doesn't know. So she's kinda and I told him the story. I said Oftentimes, that something's going to happen to her. Something will happen in the next couple of years, probably, with her that's going to have an impact that'll sort of help inform the direction where she goes. Don't you think that's, is that true? I do. I think, you know, and it's different for everyone. And I do think that expectations uh, do sort of set the stage. It's like going to a really good movie. You just see a great movie and you go around, you tell somebody else what a great movie it was. Well, you've set the expectations. So now I go to the movie and I'm expecting a great movie. And perhaps it's a really good movie, but I was expecting <laughs> a great movie. Well, when I came into that lecture hall that day, I had no expectations at all. So if somebody had told me what a great field this was, I'm not sure it would have had the same impact. So it was really the self-discovery. For a lot of students that I work with, it doesn't work that way. There's no epiphany. It's usually a process of elimination, the things mm. that you don't want to do, and then you limit it down or you you narrow it down. And I know that's a source of frustration for some students is that they don't have the epiphany. Um, but, you know, I oftentimes will tell them that you will become passionate about the things that you do. So don't worry about the lack of an epiphany. I was just fortunate enough to have one. Yeah. And that actually just it reminds me, you know, the the way that we you and I met was through uh, Dr. Misty Shields. And of course, she had uh, a powerful story. So I guess it, it, there's very many reasons why people choose, you know, the path that they that they choose. And for her, I think it happened really early because of the experience of having her father pass away from uh, from cancer. So um, really powerful. And I, I, I think that I'd, I'd love to. Uh, you know, talk to you about how you, uh, well, first of all, let's talk about, you know, we've talked a lot about people have their, you know, they, they have what they do, but the most interesting usually is why they do it. At least it is for me. And I know it is for you. So maybe we could, we could kind of tie that to, you know, you, you, you're a, an expert in the area of, of, of lung cancer, but maybe you could kind of frame that in terms of your why, uh, when you go uh, to work every day? 
Yeah. Well, you know, your why does change over time. I think for Misty, her why was established when she was 15 years old. And I agree with you. The why is very powerful. I oftentimes will ask students, you know, what motivates you? You know, why do you do what you do? Let's start there and then we'll figure out the what. And for me, the why is very different than it was 20 years ago, because now I've had 20 years of experience of seeing people suffer and die from cancer. And so I don't have to be motivated by anything other than those uh, experiences. And that's why you do everything you can to not only help people who have a diagnosis of cancer, to reduce their suffering and, and perhaps even cure their disease or at least help them live longer. But more importantly, to try to prevent the disease if you can. And if you can't prevent the disease, try to screen so that you can get the disease in an earlier stage so that the patient has a better chance. It's all the patient stories, it's all the experiences, it's the conversations that you've had. You know, from time to time, you sort of reflect back on patients that you've cared for and their family members. And every now and then you actually see somebody in public and you'll be reminded. And these are the things. So you really don't need any motivation. But initially, your motives are a little bit less, uh, I don't know if mature is the word, but but they're different. So when I um, was a fellow, I was deeply inspired by Dr. Einhorn. Mm. Dr. Einhorn represented what I thought, not just a physician, but a humanitarian. When I was a fellow, Dr. Einhorn hurt his back. And so he couldn't come into the office for about a month. And he had his patients, this was back 25 years ago, he had his patients come to his house, bring their x-rays, and he would visit with them there because we didn't have telehealth or anything like that. You know, he was the consummate humanitarian. He would give patients his phone number. Um, you could tell he truly had compassion uh, for people. And not only that, but he was the consummate medical educator. He would invest himself in the student that was right before him as if they were the most important person in the world. And he would uh, have, he would be very present. He would teach, he would listen, he would role model. And that was very inspiring. And, and I'm not the only person who's been inspired to sort of follow that trajectory. So all this leads to, I'm now a second year fellow and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I decided that what I want to do is to be mentored by Dr. Einhorn to become the type of physician, researcher, humanitarian that he uh, role modeled. And it could have been lymphoma, testicular cancer, breast cancer. It had nothing to do with lung cancer. It had more to do with I wanted him to mentor me. And he, uh, he wanted to mentor me. And that's how it all came about. Because when I finished my fellowship 23 years ago, things looked grim in lung cancer. Yep. There was no screening. Smoking rates were still almost 30% in U.S. adults. There was no adjuvant or neoadjuvant therapy. 
there was not clear and convincing evidence that anything beyond radiation therapy improved patients' outcomes with stage three disease. There was not any clear and convincing evidence metastatic patient, patients with metastatic disease lived longer with chemotherapy. There was set, certainly nothing like second-line therapy. There was no targeted therapy. There was no immune therapy. People got famous, became famous in the lung cancer world, not because of, an, of any advances that they discovered, but it was a series of negative clinical trials. They would write clinical trials in the best of you know, hopes, and they would be negative, negative, negative. And so this was not something that a lot of people were clamoring to do. That's true. I, yeah, I've, I've said that so many times that, that I've met so many people that are uh, at the, about the same uh, career stage that you are, you know, that started in the early 2000s that felt the same way. It was like, people would be like, why, why would you choose to, <laughs> to focus on lung cancer? It's like, it's not interesting. It's not exciting. There's nothing happening. It's just, it's just terrible. So. And there's right? even more, right? Because there's a stigma associated with lung cancer. Yep. There's some sense of guilt and shame. It's an older population. Back in the day, it was predominantly a male population. It tended to be an older population with multiple comorbidities, with very ineffective therapies, nothing scientifically overly interesting. And you put it all together, and it was tough. That's, you know, and, and it's amazing that that you had Dr. Einhorn as your um as your mentor, because uh, for my listeners, I, I, and Nestor and I have, have talked about this. We kind of laughed about it. I, I actually sat next to Dr. Einhorn at, at a recent conference. I had no idea who he was, and he was just so nice to me. And I told, and I told uh, a friend of mine uh, about it, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, no way! He saved my life," you know. And uh, so my friend has had t testicular cancer twice. Um, and he didn't get treated by Dr. Einhorn, but he, 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 he feels like Dr. Einhorn saved his life because of the, the groundbreaking work that he did. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's this sense that, you know, you touch people beyond the patients that you are seeing yourself. Um, a good example of this. So if we talk about in the testicular cancer world, in the 1970s, there were a handful of urologists in the world. One of them was here at Indiana University. His name was John Donahue, who developed what's called the nerve sparing retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. So before this nerve sparing procedure, if you were a young man in your 20s and 30s, which most of the patients were, who underwent this retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, you would not be able to father children afterwards. Well, they identified the nerves that were involved in, in sexual function, and that's why it's called nerve sparing, and they fine-tuned this technique, and now it's standard practice. But because of that, because of that discovery in the 1970s, there are literally hundreds of thousands of human beings who are alive today who would not have been alive, not because their life was saved, but because they were born and they wouldn't have been born without the discovery of the nerve sparing procedure. 
that's what inspires me when you can do things yeah. on a big scale like that. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, I always love and what I've learned from having my show and meeting so, so many amazing people is that recognizing that the what what we're what happens today or what we see today is on the shoulders of people from 10 20 30 years ago uh, and that's the progress that we make and it's and it's probably really amazing for you to feel that you're now you're part of that right the work the work that you and your collaborators do now will benefit future the next generation right and so what uh, that's why I love this whole this idea of mentorship and and uh, thanks for sharing that story about Dr. Einhorn. That's that's really amazing. Um, so you've you've told me that you know the, the work that you're doing today, you feel like you've been training your whole life for. And I'd love to have you tell us about how you and your wife started a nonprofit and kind of kind of pull that thread through to um, to end lung cancer. Now, I'd love to have you share that with us. I, I so. I was on faculty for two or three years and, you know, uh, things were grim in the lung cancer world. And there was not a lot you could do other than to offer your, your compassion and to provide as much comfort as you can. But there was really no clear path that things were going to get better anytime soon. So I attended this workshop that talked about sort of one of the topics was deriving some purpose and meaning. And they put you through this exercise where they asked you to define your, your big life goals. So what are your big life goals? Maybe your three to five life goals. These are the big ones. This is the reason why you're alive and what you want to do with all this precious time. And then on another piece of paper, they asked you to define what accomplishments you had in the last week. And usually what happens with the exercise is you compare your life goals with what you accomplished in the last week, and there's not a lot of overlap. Because the life goals are, you know, they're they're for another day. They're, you know, because we're going to live forever and we're guaranteed good health and prosperity and so forth. So it really did sort of center me in terms of not wasting a day. What you do today is very important because you give up a day of your life to do it. You've got to work with a sense of urgency and a sense of purpose, and, and you want to tackle big things, and that's what will make your days feel very purposeful and meaningful. So my wife and I had known we wanted to start a nonprofit. We weren't exactly sure what it would be for, but we knew it would be for some good social purpose. And because it aligned very well with my work, we started an organization called Lungs for Life. We had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know what a 501c3 was. We didn't know what the regulations and laws were. We didn't know. I mean, honestly, we were making it up as we went along. And as the years went along, we got pretty good at what we did. We developed a lot of relationships. We worked on tobacco issues. We worked on research. We worked on advocacy. We had events. And we built a pretty large army of advocates. We raised a lot of money. And we developed a tobacco education program for kids. And we were very proud of this. We did it for eight years. 
Um, and then sort of life got really busy. Uh, my work got busier. We had three kids at the time. And so we just didn't have the energy to do it anymore. So we put a little pause on this. But I had learned so many lessons from that experience. I had developed so many relationships. I had a lot of skills uh, that came from that. And um, three years ago, I had an opportunity with uh, some seed money to start End Lung Cancer Now, which is really something that had been in my mind for decades. And because of the opportunity with some seed money, we were able to start. And um, I really do look back at the things that we do, uh, and I can trace relationships that I built, lessons that I learned, mistakes you had made in the past that you know not to make this time, how to build teams, how to lead, how to inspire, how to be inclusive, how to empower um, just all of those skills and, um, and it's, it's just so gratifying and we're still learning. Of course, you never stop learning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you, t uh, tell us about, uh, in lung cancer now? Yeah. So lung cancer used to be a rare diagnosis. So in the 1800s, it was incredibly rare, and, and it was arduous to, to make cigarettes. There were no automated, automated cigarette rolling machines. But that all changed in the late 1800s, where you could now begin to mass produce cigarettes. Having said that, there was still sort of this stigma against smoking. It was considered dirty. It, would, it, was, it was actually considered unhealthy, although we didn't know for sure. And there were a lot of public figures who refused uh, to endorse smoking. Ty Cobb was actually famous for speaking out against smoking. And some people wonder why Honus Wagner's card is the most valued card, baseball card. It's worth like over $3 million. The reason why is because back in the day, the uh, baseball cards were packaged with tobacco. And he refused to have his baseball card printed and sold with tobacco. So only like two of them were ever made. And of course, he's a Hall of Famer. He's in the original Hall of Fame class. So there were a lot of warriors back in the day. And there were only about 3,000 known diagnoses of lung cancer uh, in the early 1900s. So this used to be a rare form of cancer. So we know it can become rare again. So our vision is to end the suffering and death from lung cancer, and we're focused on the state of Indiana. And to do so, we have four missions. We want to reduce tobacco consumption. While it's true that many people with lung cancer have never smoked, it is also true that for at least men, the vast majority, even in the world, are regular smokers. So we do want to attack smoking. This, and we're doing very well, but we need to keep up the fight. The second is to increase screening rates. So right now, only 7% of Americans who are eligible for lung screening are getting lung screening. And this compares to about 80% for mammography and 75% for colonoscopy. 
So we know screening saves lives. So we want to increase lung screening. Third is we want to continue to promote research and invest in research dollars. And fourth is we want to support patients and advocates. Now, this latter point is incredibly important. We mentioned the guilt and the shame and the stigma. And this results in a lot of people not advocating for themselves. It results in less funding for research. It, it results in lots of, uh, you know, unfortunately, lack of support for the lung cancer community. And I truly believe that advocacy is the key to making the difference. Mammography did not used to be ubiquitous, but it was women advocating for women. And I believe the tobacco uh, usage rate has gone down greatly, not because of doctors, but because of public health officials and public advocates. And so we think it's very important to support and empower advocates. Wow, that's an amazing story, by the way, about Honus Wagner. I did not know that. That is that is remarkable. But I think I and I agree with you on the on the on the advocacy part. And I think I think I know you've made connection with the White Ribbon Project. So I'd love to have you uh, tell tell me tell us what you uh, I oftentimes like to hear what uh, oncologists think of the, I call it a movement, if you will, but because I've been involved with the White Ribbon Project from the beginning and I'm on the board and um, I, I have, I see it from a patient perspective or a caregiver perspective, but what always inspired me from the very beginning was when we got involved with clinicians and they were standing with us in these photos and getting involved and speaking up and all that. I love that. So tell, tell, tell us about what your what you thought of when you first heard of the uh, White Room Project and what you see uh, and the potential and how it might align with um, and lung cancer now. Yeah, absolutely. And I've most recently just kind of heard the origin story of White Ribbon and, you know, Heidi had been uh, diagnosed with lung cancer and, and she certainly uh, did not feel the support from from really the public and the health systems in the community. So her husband, her loving husband, just carved this white ribbon for her. And she felt so special and she displayed it. It went viral and, and a movement was made. And, and I, I just love that. And it just goes to show how powerful individual acts can be that inspire others to lead a movement. The way I became knowledgeable about the White Ribbon Project was through uh, Alicia Arnold. So Alicia is uh, was this uh, just heroic, beautiful, brilliant woman who in her 40s was diagnosed with lung cancer. And she was a never smoker. She had an EGFR mutation. And... Um, she became involved in advocacy. Interestingly enough, she was a research nurse in breast cancer. She became an advocate for lung cancer and she got involved in the White Ribbon Project. And, and we reached out to one another and she wanted to know if we would be willing to distribute a few white ribbons. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, we're more willing to do way more than that. 
we'll put the power and the 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 energy of end lung cancer now behind this. And we we are going to have events. We are going to make hundreds of white ribbons, and we are going to help spread the word because the cancer center uh, was willing to have a white ribbon uh, day, and we were willing to put gasoline on it. And so at our November event. Uh, this is, I think, Friday, November 3rd. We have our third annual lung, uh, End Lung Cancer Now gathering. It's focused entirely on advocacy and how you build advocacy. And uh, we have the co-founder of the White Ribbon Project, and we have other advocate leaders as well who are going to be joining us. And all participants are going to get their own White Ribbon. And um, it's, uh, it's going to be just a very, uh, I think, very empowering day. Oh, I love that. I love that. I've been to so many of these uh, events like the like the one that you're describing and the the one that one of my most memorable ones was down in in uh Nashville um uh Dr. Christine Lovely and um some folks from Sarah Cannon and Vanderbilt um they got this crazy amazing cool group together uh with one of my also one of my friends from uh Pfizer uh, Lauren Mackis. And, uh, it was just, even though it, it was, it was a million degrees that day. Cause it was in, in the summer in, in Tennessee, which, you know, which is not my favorite. Cause I don't like the hot weather, but, but the, the, just the fellowship and camaraderie and the built sense of community that came from that event was just really special. So you, you're going to love it. You, you were going to, it's going to be amazing. And, um, I know I just heard about that, uh, from Heidi. So, I'll have to see if I can find a way to, to to make my way to Indianapolis for that. So there's this, um, you know, I, I feel like this generation of researchers and, you know, we've been very fortunate that the science has come during our time as, uh, you know, uh, you know, the baton was was handed to us uh, from, you know, the Dave Johnsons and Paul Buns and Joan Schillers and, Francis Shepherds and Dave Edingers and and so and Larry Einhorns, um, and we were fortunate that we you know that the the Human Genome Project came to be you know and completed around 2000, and the Cancer Genome shortly thereafter, and all the discoveries with PD one and so forth. So we you know it's it, we're, we're very fortunate to be practicing in this time with all this great discovery, but. You have this group of researchers who knew what things were like when it was not like this. So we have this enormously deep appreciation for what we're seeing. I think if you had been a doctor in the 1960s and you had seen all these young men dying of testicular cancer, then the advances in the 1970s would be even more profound to you than me, who it's just uh, always has been that young men with testicular cancer are largely cured with chemotherapy. I would take it for granted. But this generation of researchers does not take this for granted. We know what it was like when things were really, really grim. And I think for that reason, there's this camaraderie, there's this excitement, there's this energy. The other thing that has happened as a result of all this progress is that fellows today want to go into lung cancer. 
You know, that wasn't the case years ago. And they're they're taking on the mantle and 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 they're you know they're accelerating this type of advocacy in ways that you know we haven't, you know, through social media and, and, and through podcasts and through all sorts of other interesting things. So it, it's truly it's fun. The success sort of re-energizes you, it continuously feeds the excitement. And, um, you know, this is just a really special time. And ASCO this year, um, we saw the overall survival results of the ADORA trial, which was an adjuvant osimertinib if you had an EGFR mutation. And it was just an absolute breakthrough to show the survival difference that we were curing more patients with, with uh, you know, targeted therapy. And Roy Herbst did a great job in presenting it. Ben Solomon did the discussion for that presentation. And I've never seen this before. But during his discussion, he had a slide acknowledging Jill Feldman and the EGFR resistors. And uh, I've known Jill. I've worked with Jill. And, you know, 10,000 people watching clapped in unison, acknowledging the, the advocacy warriors. And Heidi is one of those advocacy warriors. And uh, it's just very special. It's so fun to be a part of this group. That's awesome. Yes. And I, and I know Jill very well as well. And, and Heidi, of course, and I'm honored to be part of that, that this army of advocates, you know, who are uh, being very, uh, active and vocal, and I I love how you've kind of shared with us this the history of this you know the the next generation and the and the this movement because it's not just advocates who are part of the movement. I think that's what we always stress from the very beginning of the White Ribbon Project that it wasn't just for patients. It wasn't just for patients and their caregiver. It was it was for the entire community, and that the community is way broader than just the patient. So I, I love how you've, you know, you framed that. And I'm, I'm now excited to be part of the ISLAC uh, uh, Star Scholar Program. So I'll be in Singapore this year. So I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure if Jill's going, but I'll, I'm sure I'll see a lot of uh, advocates there as well. So, but thank you. And I, I was going to ask you about, I thought, I, th I thought I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, like, what is the, the research that you're most excited about. Uh, I love the fact what you just shared about the, the, the story at ASCO, but if there's, if there is anything that you're working on or that you'd like to share with us uh, real quick about um, some research that you're doing, I'd love to have you share with us. Well, I'm interested. I'm very excited about a lot of things. The, the, the bi-specific T cell engagers are very exciting. We saw some presentations on um, antibodies to DLL3 bound to an antibody to CD3, bringing T cells in close proximity to small cells. And you get some very durable responders in patients who are chemo resistant. I, I love the bispecific uh, research, the antibody drug conjugate research, which is very exciting. I'm also very excited about um, uh, tracking what we and recording what we call minimal residual disease so that we can spare patients treatment so that we can, you know, uh, know how much treatment patients truly need. 
Right now, it's just a formula. You get this many cycles or a year of this or three years of that. And there's a lot of waste in that. There are a lot of people who are taking medicines that are destined never to help them or medicines that they don't need anymore. It helped them and they just don't need more of it. So I do think that that is uh, very exciting. And I think that uh, those are advances. Those are real advances, the bispecifics, the antibody drug conjugates, and utilizing technology such as circulating tumor DNA to, uh, to help personalize duration of therapy. The other thing I'm really interested in is some of this artificial intelligence and the ability to determine for, and it's being utilized in different ways in medicine, but it may be something that can be incorporated in screening. So right now we have these very broad screening parameters. You know, you have patients between 50 and 80, at least a 20 pack year smoking history and either current smokers or having quit within the last 15 years. Well, there's a huge amount of resources and effort that go into screening that population. And by the way, it doesn't capture all patients. In fact, about half of people with lung cancer don't meet lung screening criteria. So if we can leverage radiomics, leverage artificial intelligence, leverage biomarkers to tell us these are the patients who are most likely to get lung cancer. These are the patients who need intensified screening and follow-up and maybe even some uh, you know, active prevention. Uh, I, I think we're going to get there. We're already starting to see it. It's, it's not even in its infancy. I think it's a small toddler starting to grow up. And uh, I feel like in the next five to 10 years, that's going to be routinely incorporated into our decision-making. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. I, I happen to agree. Um, and I, you know, when I hear how, how low the screening rates are, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really sad to me, you know, that we can, there are people that can be helped, but I love that your optimism for where we're at and that we're not just infants, we're maybe toddlers. I love that. That's so, okay. So before I, before I let you go, I have to ask you, I ask everybody on my show, uh, one final question, which is outside of work, if you can tell us something that you're passionate about or something that people may not know about you. Well, I'm sure a, a, a standard <laughs> answer is family. So i uh, married to my beautiful wife, Amy, for uh, 26 years, and we have four children, Nick, uh, who's 23, Reese, who's 21, Aaron, who's 19, and Morgan, who's nine. So we love, uh, obviously, our family time and, and uh, raising children is just, uh, you know, it's the most wonderful thing. But outside of family, uh, <laughs> I am a huge open wheel racing fan. I am obsessed with IndyCar. I watch a little Formula One, but I'm obsessed with IndyCar and all things the Indianapolis 500. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I know way too much about open wheel racing. I, uh, but that is one of my deep passions. That's awesome. That's so funny. I, and I'm laughing to, to my listeners. I'm the reason I'm laughing is that you know when I when I when I when I told Nasser that I met um, Patrick Dempsey recently. Like he he could care less about you know what his work as an actor he was he all he cared about was his uh, race racing acumen so I thought that was was really funny right 
Yeah, it, it combines danger and speed and it's loud and it's it's thrilling it's exciting i actually got into an indie car and did a two uh, i did a um a professional driver took me around the speedway and it's frightening i was gonna say it's gonna be terrifying <laughs> it is terrifying <laughs> It's the acceleration and deceleration. So when you get up to a certain speed, you can acclimate to the speed. But it's going from nothing to massive speed to massive braking. That is the G-forces is what's so jarring. And uh, yeah, I have all the respect in the world for, for those drivers. And well, God bless you for doing it because driving in an indie race car or skydiving or there's several things that I just have no no interest in because I think I would just have a heart attack on the, on the spot. So, uh, but it must have been amazing for you. It must have been an amazing experience. I love that. Yes, that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, uh, Nasser. And it's really it's it's really a pleasure to speak with you. And I it's an honor to have you on my show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for for all the work that you do. Uh, you know, as a as a clinician, as a researcher, and as an advocate, uh, all of it. Uh, much respect for you, and uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Dave. I really enjoyed the time with you today. 